So good morning. <clears throat> First, I want to um, I'd just like to say a, a big thanks, actually, before we get started to um, Gcon and Mejo um, for uh, creating these new robes that I'm wearing today. Um, it means so much more to me that they came from you. Um, and I hope that I can deliver um, the same amount of care and attentiveness that um, you both put into um, making this for me. So I really, truly, deeply appreciate it. Thank you. This case today is from uh, the Mumankan, case number five. A man up a tree. The case. Master Kyogen said, it's like a man up a tree, hanging from a branch by his mouth. His hands cannot grasp a branch. His feet won't reach the bough. Someone appears under the tree and asks, what is the meaning of bodhidharmas coming from the West? If he does not respond, he goes against the wish of the questioner. If he answers, he will lose his life. What would you do in such a situation? The commentary. Even if your eloquence flows like a river, it is of no use. Even if you can expound the whole body of the sutras, it is of no avail. If you can respond to it fittingly, you will give life to the way that has been dead until this moment and destroy the way that has been alive up until now. Otherwise, you must wait for Maitreya Buddha and ask him. The verse. Kyogen is truly thoughtless. His vice and poison are endless. He stops up the mouths of the monks and devil's eyes sprout from their bodies. <clears throat> I saw a dead man the other day. Well, he should have been dead anyways. Anyway, by most accounts. But there he was sitting in front of me. We were having breakfast together. My friend, not much older than me, had been diagnosed with cancer two years earlier. The doctors found an irregular mass on one of his lungs during a routine checkup. The news to him, to his family, of course, was shocking, difficult, but they took some sort of comfort in the fact that the doctors felt that they had found the tumor early enough 
and the prognosis was good. He would have surgery, followed by chemo, which together they felt would eradicate the cancer. That was the plan, anyway. And while no one plans for cancer, my friend felt that things were well enough in control that things would eventually return to normal, whatever, whatever that means. And the plan at the beginning was working. Doctors had successfully removed the tumor, and the chemo they felt would kill off any lingering cells. But then things took an unexpected and downward turn. One night, while at home, he suddenly felt an acute and searing pain in his back. Uncertain of what it was, he gestured in agony to his wife that he'd better get to the hospital. Within moments of arriving at the hospital, while doctors were furiously trying to determine what was happening, his world faded to black. Didn't take the medical team long to figure out what had happened. The pain in his body was its way of letting him know that a new fight against the resurgent and more aggressive cancer had begun. As he fell in and out of consciousness, the doctors decided to place him in a medically induced coma. They told his wife and his children to come and say goodbye, that he probably was never going to wake up. And I asked him, do you remember anything after you lost consciousness and were in a coma? Sensing the true intent, though, behind my question, he took a sip of coffee, chuckled, and said, No, there was no white light. Most doctors felt that he wouldn't survive, and that the best course of action was to make him as comfortable as possible. But one attending physician had a radical idea. As long as he was in a coma, why not continue with the chemotherapy? Perhaps this might be one last chance he had to fight the cancer. It worked, but not without some side effects. The chemical cocktail that was in his body was killing the cancer, but when the Doctors brought him out of the coma. He suffered from vivid and frightening hallucinations. He believed the doctors were trying to kill him. Truly, he saw devils sprout from his eyes. He panicked when nurses tried to insert a feeding tube in his throat. He was petrified at the new reality he found himself in and uncertain that he would ever escape it. Screaming and growing more violent, the medical staff had no choice but to restrain him. They tied his hands and feet to the gurney. He was a prisoner in his room and in his mind.
He pleaded with the staff to remove the restraints and promised to behave. And so they unfastened his hands, but left his feet tied to the bed. This did little to calm his mind. And that night he struggled so hard to free himself, he fell out of his bed and broke five ribs. Physically and mentally in anguish, he struggled to find peace in a foreign and scary new world. Over the course of the next couple of months, he lost over 40 pounds. He was emaciated. His muscles had deteriorated to the point where he couldn't stand on his own. His mind and his body were completely exhausted. And yet, and yet, here he was, sitting in front of me. He had put much of the weight <clears throat> that he had lost back on. And other than his bald new look, which I must say is all the vogue these days, it would have been difficult, really, for anyone to know what he had gone through. So after he told, told me the story, I asked him, what do you think the meaning of all this is? And he sim simply shrugged and took another bite of his eggs. Indeed, I saw a dead man that day. What I didn't yet realize was that dead man was me. It, it wasn't until days after, as I was preparing for this taste show, that I thought of the case that I referenced at the beginning. The similarities between the story of Master Kyogen and my friend, I hope, will become clear by the end of this talk. But in order to do so, we need to take a closer look at the story behind old master Kyogen and his teacher Isan, and how Kyogen managed to get into this strange and remarkable predicament. Kyogen was a disciple of Isan. He actually was a he actually was a cousin of uh, Rinzai as well. And this would have been sometime during the 8th um, or 9th centuries CE. Kyogen was a great scholar, but his intelligence for a long time stood in the way of his own enlightenment. And Isan, recognizing his ability, one day asked him, Kyogen, what is your essential face before your father or mother were born? Kyogen didn't know what to say. He searched through all of his books, but couldn't find any words to use, couldn't find any way of responding 
to Esan's question. And finally, in desperation, he went back to Esan and said, I, I don't know the answer. Please tell me what it is. And Esan responded, Even if I might show you, it is my word and has nothing to do with your answer. Driven to despair, Kyogen burned all of his books and he literally gave up training with Isan. He left. And he traveled to um, the grave of uh, national teacher Chu, to the gravesite of the national teacher Chu, um, and decided to lead a life, simple life, in a hut as a nameless gravekeeper. One day, when he was sweeping the ground, a stone struck a bamboo. Kyogen stood speechless, forgetting himself for a while. Then suddenly, he burst into a loud laughter and experienced great enlightenment. Returning to his hut, Kyogen paid homage to his teacher and said, Great master, thank you. Your kindness to me is even greater than that of my parents. If you had explained the profound cause to me when I begged you to give me an answer, I should never have reached where I stand today. So, with that context, let's return to the koan. Yeah, I often don't think that we take koans literally enough. Most people here listening to this here have had at least some exposure to koans. Um, and so realize that they're not some riddle to be solved or some puzzle to be deciphered. And anyone who's tried to go into Dokusan and present it in that way knows how futile and frustrating that experience can be. I think we've all been there. It's also important to note that koans are not mere historical records either. While, yes, they are public cases, it, it, and it can be useful, um, I think, in some regard to understand our lineage and what previous practitioners and masters went through, it doesn't necessarily bring it to life for us. They can, in this sense, sort of remain relics of the past with very little relevance to our lives today. But koans are intended to show us something and to bring something out in us. They're meant to stir something within that we may not otherwise be fully conscious of. They often use colorful metaphors. But for them to truly penetrate to our core, 
and evoke those universal and sometimes very uncomfortable feelings within us. We have to embody them in a literal way. Kyogen created this koan from his own personal suffering, his own pain. I mean, where else could it come from other than our own lived experience? And he's asking us to do the same. To look to those places within us that create the same insecurities, the same frustrations, and for us to speak from there. We all must use our own lives, our own struggles, if we're going to offer anything of value to anybody else. In fact, it's actually the, it is, it is this bitterness and pain that provide the nourishment over time um, for us to show us the way to, to awaken. We use that as fuel. So in this particular case, we get a pretty vivid description of how Kyogen felt after being posed this question by Isan, for which no books, no amount of knowledge could possibly answer. It's like a man up a tree, hanging from a branch by his mouth. Take a moment just to put yourself in that position. What does it feel like? Describe it in your own words. Is it painful? Paralyzing? Scary? Can you feel your jaw clenching the limb? Pay attention to your hands flailing with nothing to grab onto and your feet dangling with no support underneath. Reason cannot help you. Science cannot save you. If you let go, you die. What will you do? This gripping of the branch is such a powerful image. It's a powerful metaphor for that which we hold on to. Our hopes and our dreams, our preconceptions, all of the assumptions that we hold dear and don't want to let go of. What is it that you still hold on to? I think many people aren't even aware that they're holding on like this. It's as if they're in a coma. 
until someone or something comes along and shakes them up, wakes them up, makes alive what was dead and kills what was alive. And this can be really scary and unsettling as we are forced to confront our deepest fears and insecurities. Then Kyogen says, as you're dangling from this tree, grasping for something to hold on to, a person appears and asks you this profound question. What is the meaning of Bodhidharma coming from the West? And if you don't answer, you're stuck, suffering, until Maitreya Buddha comes, which is a long time away. And if you do answer, you die. So you can't avoid the question just as much as you can avoid life. But how do we find an appropriate response to get us out of this precarious situation? The question, of course, is asking about what we call the great matter, right? The matter of life and death, the meaning of things. What is the meaning of Bodhidharma coming from the West? Who is Bodhidharma? Why did he make this journey from India to China? To what end? For what purpose? We could make this even more personal, right? Who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? What happens when I die? These were precisely the kinds of questions that I was asking my friend when we met for breakfast. Right? What's the purpose of this suffering? What's the meaning of life? And please tell me, what happens after? And it's difficult to encounter reality like this, right? We tend to avoid it, push it aside. We prefer, in some ways, to keep dangling out there on that tree, holding on at least you know, to that which we know, that which we love, our family, our friends, our loved ones. And we don't often acknowledge that they will eventually die. And so will we. This is the meaning of the teaching of impermanence. So how do we respond? What do we do with that? Here we have a critical choice. 
Now, on the one hand, we could continue to remain hanging from that branch, grasping for life and limb. Try to find some way to gain more solid footing. Look for that security. Try to find a ground on which we might finally be able to rest. Or we can confront the fundamental question. Learn how to respond. Learn how to let go. And find that place that exists before our parents were born. So another master, Master Bankai, who wrote in the 17th century, the Zen master of the 17th century, this is probably 900 years or so after Isan and Kyogen. And he focused his entire teaching around realizing this unborn, realizing this place that we finally can get some semblance of um, security. So he says, instead of struggling to do or become something, one needs to cease struggling entirely. If one is truly natural and innocently spontaneous, the unborn will appear. The key to realization is not some method or practice, however helpful these may be, but letting go of everything which is not the unborn. This involves no special method, as typically understood. It involves the total openness of one who has no presumed goal no presumed intention, no presumed desire or wish. This kind of letting go is very different than simply disengaging. I think it's important to make that clear. This is not a giving up. This is not a wallowing in that place where there is no meaning. It's actually the opposite. It's an engagement with the world. It's a functioning in the world as we are. But how do we do this? And that is not for me to say. I can't tell you how to be. Just like Isan said to Kyogen, my word has nothing to do with your answer. But what I will say is this. Keep returning to the question. Take up the practice. 
Genuine practice is absolutely essential. Without expectations, without pretense, without any guarantee. Do it with determination, dedication, perseverance. Nothing changes without those things. How far are we willing to go? Are we willing to give everything away, like Kyogen? Or do we still need something to hold on to? This requires a good amount of faith. We call it great faith. And we need that because we, we need that faith because logic and our intellect can't get us there. Our intellect wants to understand. It wants to know. It wants to find meaning. But there is no meaning. There are no solutions. There is no realization. And there definitely are no guarantees. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is certain. Everything is in flux. And flux doesn't care about meaning. Flux doesn't even know what meaning is. It's only our minds that want to resist this change and preserve some notion of a fixed and immutable self that projects meaning onto an otherwise meaningless world. Back to our question, what, what do we do? Do we do nothing? Do we try and go back to that comatose state before the question was asked? And we weren't even aware that we were dangling from the tree? Do we go back to that place where We're dangling, holding on, grasping, uncertain, paralyzed. Or is there something else that we're called to do? And here we can take some inspiration, I think, again, from Isan, Kyogen, all of the great teachers, including my friend who I met for breakfast. What did they do? How did they act? Well, first point is that they really made no attempt to explain things as they really are. They didn't try and give an answer. 
When I asked my friend what was the meaning of all this, he just shrugged. And they hold fast to that not knowing. But then what? Well, then they just show up. Just as my friend showed up at breakfast, fearless, courageous, probably still scared, but there nonetheless. Each of us is called in the same way to this type of action, right? Not to remain passive, not to remain static, not to remain in a coma. We must, at some point, come out and rejoin the world. That's what we're called to do. A life of action, of service, of gratitude, and of humility. We have to do whatever it takes to realize who we are. We have to practice with this great determination, again, without pretense or expectations. We have to cut out everything that is not essential, burn all of the thoughts, the concepts, the expectations, the desires. Burn it all and go be a gravekeeper for a little while. And then, don't be afraid to go out on that limb. Don't be afraid to act. Don't be afraid to help, to support. to offer what you have for the benefit of others. That takes courage, too. So that's what I learned at breakfast with my friend. After all the questions and my own internal struggle for that search for meaning. It all comes down to basically drinking that cup of coffee while it's still hot. And I have a feeling one day I'll be making great prostrations to that friend and thanking him for not explaining the profound cause to me when I asked him about it. So I'll leave you with this. Who am I sitting with here today? 
Who is this being broadcast to? Am I speaking with the dead or the living? Thank you.